HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Heritage Radio Network Farm Report. Today we have a very special farmer with us, Frank Reese from Good Shepherd Turkey Ranch in Kansas. Most of you may know Frank by his world-famous award-winning turkeys, but in fact he has some other poultry projects in the works, and today we're going to talk about his chickens. Frank, why don't you say hi to our listeners, tell us a little bit about the history of your land and how you became connected with it. Dave? Say hi to everybody. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I am a fourth-generation farmer here in Kansas. My farm is 160 acres, and I work with a co-op of farmers throughout Kansas to produce poultry, chickens and turkeys and ducks and geese, and have been doing this for, for raising poultry, chickens and turkeys, for over 50 years. I got gotcha. you. So now, a lot of consumers, you know, buy chicken on their local supermarket, and they don't really know what breed it is or what the characteristics of that breed is. I understand that you've got several different breeds. Why don't you tell us a little bit about each and what distinguishes them from one another? Okay. Yeah, you're right. The, all the chickens that are being sold in stores throughout America are one genetic line. It's one breed. There's no difference. And what's it called? It's called the Cornish Rock. Okay. It's put out by one genetic company, and no matter what you buy, it all comes from the same single company as far as the genetic line. There is no biodiversity at all in our poultry world. But Which what is we have right? here is the old original meat breeds of 50, 60, 70 years ago. We do the Bard Rocks, the New Hamps. The Cornish game, Indian game. We do the Jersey Black Giant. We do the Silver Laced Wine Dot, the Buff Orpington. These were all the early meat breeds when there was still lots of diversity. So the two or three of these that are your favorites, what are their taste profiles? What sort of what sort of flavors differentiate them from one another? Okay. You know, that's an interesting question, and the best way that I want to explain it is, is that if you go back many years ago, especially much of the industry was based on the New York market. The whole broiler industry and selling meat fresh really did start in the large cities and in New York. But what used to be unique back then was is that you could go into your local meat market, your local grocery store, and they had a variety 
of breeds of chickens that were unique huh. for certain recipes, certain ethnic groups. And so it was much different than what we have today. Much more educated consumer base. With that, and you could actually choose. Sure. You know, if you wanted to a, uh, a two-and-a-half-pound chicken or if you wanted a three-and-a-half-pound, four-and-a-half-pound, six-pound, there were certain breeds and varieties of chickens that met certain uh, recipes, certain things. If you were into a Sunday fried chicken, you would probably have gotten a young Bard Rock or a young New Hamp that were specifically designed for that market. Let's say you wanted to roast a nice big chicken, you'd probably gotten a Jersey Giant that was designed and bred in the state of New Jersey back 100 years ago just for that market. And so but we, let's say you wanted to make chicken and dumplings or, or matzo balls or something. Well, your grocer actually had old hens, uh, which is unheard of today, uh, that had lots and lots of fat and flavor from having grown and been around for many years. So we right, you could even buy an old rooster. And you're saying we've lost that diversity to greed and big big agribusiness. Yes, it is completely gone. If you go and you buy a roasting chicken today, uh, rather I don't care if it's free ranged organic, all natural, Amish raised, whatever, and that chicken weighs five five and a half pounds, that's the same genetic animal that's sitting right next to you that weighs three and a half pounds, but instead of killing it at forty two days. They killed it at 62 or 70 days. And so it's still the same animal. They just fed a little longer and then killed it. The, the industrial chicken of today grows at a rate of 300 times faster than the old original chicken. Why, and that the has nothing to do of... with hormones, or it has nothing to do with what they feed them, it has nothing to do with any of that. It is genetic engineering at its best. So, not sele- so there's a difference between selective breeding and genetic engineering. Selective breeding has been around for thousands of years, but the philosophy behind selective breeding is totally different than genetic engineering. The loss, and a lot of people confuse genetic engineering with, with genetic modification. Uh-huh. GMOs is when you actually take a gene from another organism and put it in a different organism. Genetic engineering is when you approach an animal and you decide, what is it that I want it to do? The philosophy behind it is, is I want that chicken to produce meat at a much more rapid rate. So I begin to select through thousands and thousands and millions of chickens, those chickens that will grow very rapidly. Until you get down to that single genetic line, after repeating it over and over, that will grow at that rate. Now, you never take into consideration the well-being of the animal. You do want the animal to live, but live only long enough to produce what it is you want, to, want it to do. And so you pay a price, or the animal pays a price for that rapid growth. Uh-huh. The species pays a price. Yes. You know, what I tell people, it's like we decide that we're only going to allow humans to reproduce, that we can produce children that, by the time they're nine years old, they weigh 300 pounds. I mean, it's and, like a eugenics movement. That, that's the oh, concept yes. behind eugenics. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. 
but they've done a brilliant job of it. You know, chicken is considered cheap food, right? Because they're able, because they have so isolated the genetics that in a multi-billion-dollar industry, everywhere from you know chicken nuggets to chicken everything, is all built around this ability to produce this meat at a very very rapid rate. It's all about feed conversion. Okay. How much feed can you put in the animal to get the most amount of meat, or the least amount of feed into a bird with, for the most amount of meat? So now I understand that you use some selective breeding methods in your turkeys and in your chickens, but you do it in a very different way. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so explain to us the differences between your selective breeding process and the big, the big agribusiness mass production model. Okay. When, when I go out into a flock to decide who's going to be a breeder and the hens and who I, what roosters and hens I'm going to keep, I always take into consideration the well-being of the animal. Will the animal live a long, normal lifespan? Can the bird still move naturally? Can it still walk naturally? Can it still breathe without any problems? Can it withstand lots of different environments? Can it withstand extreme heat, extreme cold? Does it have an excellent system? You know, I'm able to raise my chickens, and I have for 50 years, with no use of antibiotics or anything, because I raise healthy birds that still have an immune system. So you're saying that the bird that you want to produce is a bird that's as good a bird as it can be, not as good a piece of meat as it can be. That's right. Okay. And that, yep. so, so and, helping a and bird. diversity, you okay. know, that is what's the other important part. We pay a lot of attention to diversity. By that I mean we pay a lot of attention to the bloodlines so that we don't have inbreeding. We don't have, you know, a small genetic pool because that's yeah. when you start getting into all these problems. So talk to me a little bit about this this, this risk of losing biodiversity and how you are preserving it. That's, that is very, very important to me. Most of these bloodlines that I have, I know their lineage back 50, 60, 70, 100 years or more. And there's getting to be very, very few of these old breed lines still left. And if we lose them, and we've already lost a number of them, they are gone forever. You will never have them back again. They're gone forever. And so this is really important to me because I really believe that eventually, because we have a total mono system, both with chickens and turkeys, that it would take very little to wipe them all out. In fact, I really believe that's why we are fine. We're seeing more and more of these diseases that we cannot control uh, like bird flu. Like novel pathogens. Yep, because what, we are what? raising our chickens in a perfect media to produce bacteria Infesting. and viruses that continue to mutate. Huh. Where if you have, you know, I always tell people, you know, in Mother Nature, Mother Nature doesn't need antibiotics to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Mother Nature has been around for millions of years and has done very well with its animals on this earth without the use of antibiotics, and we need to pay attention to what Mother Nature Sure, mimic her processes. Yep, how she processes things. 
Okay. So you're known in in the realm of turkey raising for your uncommon ability to pick the strongest candidates for selective breeding. Do you look for similar traits in your chickens that you do in your turkeys? Or does something that would make a turkey a good candidate for breeding actually show that a chicken would be a, a particular chicken would be bad for breeding? Do you look for the same things? What's your criteria there? You know, it's very similar. Very it's similar. Very, very similar in, in picking good breeding hens and toms and turkeys the same as it is for chickens. And what uh, makes I take a into good the breeding same hen? consideration because both of these animals, you're asking them to do the same thing and that is to produce meat, to produce a nice carcass that people would be proud to eat. And so you do start selecting, but we just don't push it to the point in which the animal has problems. You know, we still take into consideration. Plus, the other thing that I always do is, is if I'm selling somebody a barred rock chicken or a new ham, that barred rock must truly represent the barred rock chicken, and according to the standards of the American Poultry Association, which goes back to 1874, and this was and the barred rock was the chicken that was the number one meat chicken in America for a hundred years until it was replaced by the factory chicken of today. So you bring up the APA, the American Poultry Association, and all of your chickens and. Actually, all of the birds that you raise meet the APA's standards of perfection. Yes. Explain to our listeners who may, who may have eaten your chicken or eaten your turkeys what exactly those standards are and okay, what, the, kind of, what kind of expectations your birds are being held to. Okay. The American Poultry Association, or the APA as we call it, is the oldest agricultural organization in America. And it was founded back east in New York and in Boston, uh, and was first established in 1874 to improve the quality and the, and the standards, which is another way of saying purebred, poultry in America. Uh, the best other way I can explain it is, is it's similar to what happened later, which is the American Kennel Association. Uh, oh, okay, so it's like a which best set in show. Up standards. If you're going to buy a German Shepherd and have it registered, well, the, the AKC has exactly what a German Shepherd should look like from top to bottom. Confirmation, color, size, disposition, its job, everything. Well, the APA did it long before the AKC. They wrote standards for barred rock chickens, for bronze turkeys, a hundred and some years ago. And it wasn't just to win shows. It was, it was, they wrote those standards because if you bred your, your chickens to those standards, you would have the best farm market chicken you could produce. And so I still breed to those standards. And how, what would you say is the percentage of poultry breeders who do? That do that? Yeah. That, that do it for further selling of birds? You mean for production of meat? Yeah. I don't know of anybody else that does it. Oh, so you're one. Of, you're the only poultry farmer, as far as you know, you're the only poultry farmer whose product meets the APA standards of perfection. Yes. So that's how water. That's how watered yeah. down the American poultry industry has become. Yes. 
So, so now, there are people around the United States who are still raising New Hampshire, Bard Rocks, Rhode Island Reds, Silver Lace Windups that are still breeding them in very small little numbers for, no, for exhibition, you know, just for uh, taking to shows. Right, but... But I don't know of anybody else in the United States or any place who is raising standard bred birds, or they call them now heritage chickens, that are raising them to the standards for the purpose of selling them for people to eat, which was the original purpose. I mean, this was the poultry industry here for 100 years. But the APA lost all its power around the late 40s, early 50s. And so basically, no it's a standard that was set. It. It's a standard that was set that was usurped and discarded by big businesses. Yes. Once the poultry industry left the single-family farm, when it left the farmer and became a university-controlled thing, and then eventually became controlled totally by CEOs and the industry, then there were, you know... There was no need for the APA. The APA has absolutely no power over any of the chickens. So why but doesn't the, the APA is getting ready to come back, at least to help with what I'm doing. And they're willing to put their seal of approval. In fact, it is on our package. I'm sure. So why doesn't the government enact some sort of legislation that forces farmers and that, for, that forces big agribusiness to follow some sort of protocol for the quality of their, of their birds? Why don't they? Yeah. Because, because nobody cares. Right. And I'm sure their pockets are lined by the very companies that are producing. Well, yeah. I mean, come on. You know, that nice big company in Arkansas got a few presidents in office. Huh. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, and the whole industry is based upon cheap food. Really rapid, cheap food. And immense greed. So, I mean, because you live a perfectly comfortable life raising raising poultry the way it's supposed to be raised, right? Yep. I'm, but it, I, I have to admit it's been a super struggle because the entire infrastructure that used to allow people to raise their own birds, process them, and sell them to their neighbors and to the stores has been completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. So and... Now- do you rely on brands like do you do you rely on companies like Heritage pretty much almost solely for distribution? Oh well, we couldn't have done this without Patrick. Uh huh. Patrick was the first one to step up and say we want to help, and so, we believe in what you're doing. So, do you think that the kind of thing that you and Patrick have done together, do you think this model can be spread to other farmers? Then that we can reverse the process of deterioration in the poultry industry. Or do you think this I is think we can if we could ever habit. find the money. <laughs> you know, this is a huge, huge, expensive thing to do. And the other thing is the genetic pool for these birds is so tiny, it's so small, that it's going to take a long time just to build up the genetics. And the first step is what is to begin to have people buy our chickens. Right. you got to eat them to, to, to save them. Yep. So and, who, if, and once people start buying them, 
then, and, and the demand grows, then I can go to my farmers and say, hey, they want 10,000 more barred rocks, so they want 10,000 more new hams. And the, and the farmer will produce them. And every time that happens, that means a larger and larger genetic pool begins sure. to grow. Sure. I mean, I mean the- there was a time when barred rock chickens were the king. They were raised by the millions in this country. And so, I mean, now, what's you know, next? So now, the quality of the genetics has gotten so poor. Whatever the, excuse me, whatever the chicken is that is now being raised by the millions, what happens when that one disappears? I don't know. You mean the industrial factory chicken? Yeah. I don't know if it will ever completely disappear because there will always be people who will want cheap food. Although our product. Our chickens can be raised cheaply. Cheaply, if more people. Where we, why our product is so expensive, is not the not the raising of the animal. It's the processing. Sure, and it's also because it's the production of them is pushed into a corner by the production of the other ones. Yes, is that the fact that people are only consuming the other ones makes raising these more expensive? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're only killing a thousand chickens a week to be sold to market, well, you know, the cost goes sky high mm-hmm. compared to, you know, these big companies that worldwide are probably killing a billion chickens every week, you know, and so you can, you can cut the cost way, way down. Sure. I mean, they're able to process a chicken uh, in these factory farms for somewhere around probably 18, 19 cents a pound. And us, it's $2 a pound. <laughs> That's astronomical. And we can't change that until we, too, can have greater volume. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, and, it's definitely a start. Getting Yes, it is a start. And, the, and there are people who are willing to pay more to get an animal they know that is truly, honest to goodness, sustainable. I mean, you could take our, our chickens anywhere in the world, and they would survive and reproduce themselves. All factory chickens, I don't care if they're free-ranged, organic, all-natural. Dead in a week if humans died. They, they're, all, they're all dead-end animals. Dead-end animals. If you do not kill them, they will die. Sure, sure. Wow. They are genetically engineered. Another way to say they are hybrids. In other words, if a farmer gets 10,000 Cornish Rock Factory chickens, he cannot reproduce them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Where if they get chickens from us, you can reproduce them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they will survive for generations. It's actually really sad to think about the this notion that these chickens would just be completely non-existent, completely not self-sufficient because they don't, yeah. they wouldn't, they wouldn't right. Well, Frank, we're running out of time here, but I really want to thank you for taking a moment out of your day. Well, thank you for listening. And of course you're going to be back many times with us on the heritage farm report. And on behalf of Patrick of heritage foods, USA and of heritage radio network, we'd like to thank you profoundly for your work. Thank you. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Yeah.
come back. So the voters right now crime report. Tony, you there with us? Yes, I'm here. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today on the front report. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, so I just want to explain to all the listeners out there what it is exactly that you do at Jake's Bay Family Farms. We're having some technical malfunctions. Can you just sort of stay with me? No problem. Okay. All right. So, folks, this is Kevin Looney of Jake's Bay Family Farms in Marin County. And Kevin's got a grass-fed beef operation by the Point Reyes National Seashore. It's called the Historic G Ranch by the Drake's Estero. And uh, Kevin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the history of your land, how you became connected with it, and what your day-to-day operations consist of. Um, you're referring to the Beef Ranch? Yeah, the Beef Ranch, the Historic G Ranch. Well, great. Um, well, I didn't have a lot of choice in it, and i um, thankful for that. I was born and raised there. I'm third-generation rancher on this land, which is now situated within the Point Reyes National Seashore. Okay. And what does it mean, for our listeners who don't know a lot about certifications, what does it mean for your operation to be certified grass-fed? What does it mean for your cattle to be certified grass-fed? Well, a certification program for grass-fed um, is kind of important for a number of reasons. It's similar to the certification for organic. Um, it really lets the consumer know, number one, that there are strict guidelines that are followed, and number two, that there are inspections and teeth associated with the guidelines. With grass-fed, you, you see that term thrown, out, thrown around a lot, and, and some, some claim to be grass-fed, but then grain-finished. Others claim to be grass-fed and because they were grass-fed early in the animal's life. What a grass-fed what certified grass-fed means is that that animal has spent its entire life on pasture and has never been presented um, concentrate feed grain in its entire life. And so that's how you can be assured of all the health benefits of grass-fed and grass-finished beef. And so grass-fed beef has a distinctly different profile than grain-fed, right? It's a different taste profile. Can you explain to me a little bit of the differences? I mean, some people talk about grass-fed beef being a little gamey or tasting too too meaty. How would you describe the taste? It certainly is a difference, and you're right, and it's something that um, you'll want to be aware of. It it actually, certain grass-fed beef that's out there has, has frankly, given the whole grass-fed industry maybe a bad name. People that have been raising cattle their whole lives and understand breeding and understand how to raise calves, um, suddenly say, well, I'm going to raise them up to finish weights and um, sell them as grass-fed beef. Well, that can be problematic because a lot of the genetics used today have been developed so the animals do well on grain and to really show the uh, genetic potential for a good eating experience, they kind of do need grain. Now, that animal on grass may not be as tender, it may be more dry, it may taste gamey. Uh-huh. Animals that are actually selected for and bred for finishing on grass, which you can find if you pay attention to who your producers are, mm-hmm. um, can produce a really beautiful eating experience. 
Yes, uh, a little different, a little drier, a little less intermuscular fat, so you probably have to cook it a little more slowly, but it can be absolutely fabulous. Uh-huh. Most of the ranches in the United States that I know of are landlocked, and it's rare for a, for a ranch to be so close to the ocean, and I was wondering if the 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 salt water and the, the marine ecosystem affects the grass that the cattle are feeding on and therefore the, the taste of the beef? Well, that really um, is something that has been our belief and the belief of the San Francisco Bay Area for um, 100 years. Point Reyes, the Point Reyes Peninsula with this marine environment um, and these California coastal prairie grasslands have do impart a flavor absolutely into the dairy products. The butter's been... Um, has been, you know, nationally recognized for, you know, all this time. Everybody wants to come to the Bay Area to taste this butter. Well, meat takes on similar quality. It's almost its own little terroir. Is it more salinated? No, I wouldn't say that. Um, it's actually hard to describe. It, uh, it, it's a flavor that... Uh, that reminds you of where you are. It's an interesting um, phenomenon. It's almost the taste of a, you know, that that smells like the air. So, so I'm not the, sure what brings that on. What's the difference in the grass? I mean, does the does, does the, the grass actually physically have more salt on it? The grass physically does. As a matter of fact, you know that some uh, protein and mineral supplements that people give their livestock is in the form of salt blocks. Well, cows where we live won't touch a salt block. They say, we don't even have plenty of salt. We don't need that. So, so yeah, it doesn't matter that they have plenty of salt. They just sense it. They just know it. And uh, there's an ocean spray all the time. I and mean, we have that phenomenon all the time because it's always on our windows of our home and, and, uh, and the smell is always in the air. Who are some of your top buyers out there? Well, it's, it's a local, it's, it's all local. For example, we have a few local restaurants that feature our beef, about two or three natural food stores that, that specialize on local, sustainable, and organic foods, and uh, farmer's markets. Gotcha. And um, so I was reading on your website that you – You've embraced technology over at the at the G Ranch. You use some of the the latest ultrasound techniques yes. to improve the quality of your beef. Can you can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, that is a really fabulous tool. You know, because livestock genetics have developed and changed over the last fifty or sixty years since grain became a major component in livestock feeds. And so we've selected animals that do well on grain. When now we want them to do well on grass, we have to be very careful about which animals we choose. Well, um, years and years of study at, um, at the University of Mississippi developed a technique of ultrasound for looking at livestock carcass quality while the animal is still walking around. So at five weights, when the animal is about 500 pounds, the calves, we take a 
basically a, an ultrasound between the 12th and 13th rib right where um, USDA does carcass grading. And we get five pieces of information. We get a back fat thickness. We get an intramuscular fat percentage. We get a tenderness score, a stress score, and a ribeye area per hundredweight. So we get a ratio of the ribeye size. Now, four or five of those traits are highly heritable traits. And the fifth, which is stress, is just a good indicator of, of the meat quality. Now, what we get from those are the likelihood. We now know the propensity of each one of those animals individually, uh, whether they're going to do well on grass or if they probably need a feedlot, a grain feedlot, to exhibit their best eating quality. So uh, it gives us a, a, an inside view while the animals still alive of who to select for our, for our finishing group and also our replacement heifers because we raise all our heifers to become new replacement cows in our herd, and so we're selecting carcass quality so that they'll be able to pass that on to their offspring. It takes out some of the guesswork, and it removes the likelihood of that animal that gives people kind of a bad experience about grass-fed, whether, you know, maybe too tough or too dry. Uh, this way, all of them are consistent, and they're excellent. Why, you, why do you think more farmers aren't embracing these kinds of technologies? Is it that they can't afford them, or do you think they're resistant to change? What do you think is... Well, you know, ranchers, as a rule, are not high-tech um, business people. This is not very expensive. It costs us about $7 a head to do this. Uh, there didn't, you know, for the first five years that we did it, our technician was coming out of... Uh, we had that technician out of Mississippi, and no one else on the West Coast was doing it. Today, it's become much more um, popular, much more common. We have um, a woman in the Sierra Nevada foothills uh, that is a technician, and she brings the equipment. It's highly specified, highly specific computer equipment and software that come with the ultrasound. Um, and fascinating. So it's, uh, it is becoming more and more popular. It was, uh, it was kind of a crazy thing to a lot of people when we first started, but it's proven to be absolutely accurate. So when you say that this helps determine the likelihood that an individual animal will finish well on grass, what does the term finish mean in that context? Well, you know, there are people that have spent their entire lives and, you know, to understand how to finish an animal. And finish an animal means proper fat, um, intermuscular fat, so that there's the right kind of marbling and a good, uh, good eating experience. Taste, tenderness, all things we care about, that's part of the finish. Now, that's actually a lot easier to do in a feedlot on grain because the animals just put down a lot more intermuscular fat on grain. So if we want to compare eating experience with grain-finished beef, but we want the health um, advantages of grass-fed, which are huge, health, it's night and day between the, the health of the fat in grass-finished versus grain-finished. So it's harder to do on grass, so it, takes, it really does take a lot of focus and using these kinds of technologies to help us ensure that we can get that intermuscular fat and we can get that tenderness we're looking for. Why 
why are grass-fed animals so much more healthful? Well, um, a grain-finished animal, uh, when you begin to uh, uh, feed animal grain, when I say begin, I mean within the first week of feeding a ruminant grain, ruminants weren't designed to eat grain. They are grass eaters. So grain is something that's abnormal to their bodies, and when they take in that grain, what we didn't, what we learned after World War II is, well, um, look, they do beautifully on grain. They grow fast. If you feed too much of them, it kills them. But uh, if we're careful about wrapping up the grain, um, we can put weight on cattle quickly. What we didn't realize is what we know now. It completely changes the lipid profile. The fat in the in a grass-fed animal is high in conjugated linoleic acid, and it's high in omega-3 fatty acids. It's extremely healthy. It's uh, it's like eating skinless chicken. Mm. Compared to grain-finished beef, which has really given red meat a bad name over the years for cardiovascular problems and other problems, um, frankly, uh, doctors all over the nation are prescribing grass-fed beef for cardiovascular patients. So it's truly uh, a night and day difference when it comes to, you know, human health. So why do you think the government hasn't written in more legislation to force more farmers to produce grass-fed beef? Well, that's an interesting problem. I mean, we can do this um, on local scale, but the way our beef industry is in this nation now, where we're used to buying any other beef we want, all year round, regardless of season, um, and at the quantities that, are, that beef is being produced at, um, it's unlikely we could, we could produce that same quantity all on grass. So it's probably, you know, would be a, a real paradigm shift for a lot of people to understand that their beef isn't going to be just um, automatically grass-fed if they want it. it it's going to take, uh, it's going to take human, it's going to take uh, individual consumers asking for it before the government takes any steps towards uh, requiring it. That's that's my guess. Okay. And to improve the genetics of your of your herd and to and the general well-being of of the species of beef that you raise. Do you do some selective breeding? What are the practices that you engage in that, that ensure uh, the genetic quality of your of your breed? Okay, well, I answered part of it on the female side, how we select our heifers. Now, the other half of the genetics is how we select our bulls. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to use bulls for natural breeding or if we're going to use artificial insemination, we actually look at those very same carcass quality um, Okay points on the bull and the bull's offspring. They, they actually, what they call, prove a bull by selecting that animal as a calf to be a, to be a sire, and then, that, then they let that bull have some calves, and they check the um, offspring, and that gives us what, our, what the predictability is for that animal to, you know, father good carcass quality animals. So we, we, when we select bulls, we select proven bulls that will inc improve carcass quality and will improve feed efficiency on grass. And that, they, that's, part of, that's part of our selection process. And again, five years ago, these kinds of 
traits, these kinds of genetic traits, weren't even talked about in um, in the bull magazines and in the, the Siler descriptions. Today, as grass finished and grass fed is more and more popular, we actually have those um, identified for us. I see. And how many heads of cattle do you have? We have a small farm. It's a family um, small family farm of about 200 cows. Uh-huh. And then uh, we have the group of finishing animals of maybe another 100 or so that are in that cycle uh, from calves up till time for harvest. And what's the maximum size you think that your model can sustain? Um, it actually could, it could be any size. It actually would be more efficient. Um, what works best are a number of ranchers working together, forming either cooperatives or at least groups working together, because where it's very difficult to work on your own on a small herd like this is processing and distribution. Because right now, most of the animals in the nation are killed and, and processed in just a few places around the, around the nation. Mm-hmm. Just a handful. So that's to in the Midwest, right? That's right. Where, so where are those places? Those, I, I don't know exactly where they are. Kansas, right? Missouri. Yeah, I would be guessing. I don't know exactly the location, but in the Midwest, where are the grains grown? Uh-huh. And so, so we need small-scale, regional processing. And, our, and that's how our food system and our beef system was. But it's changed, again, since the 1950s when transportation became cheap, oil was cheap, and, uh, and commercial fertilizers were available. We learned what grain finishing would do for animals. Um, it, the whole industry transitioned into, from a local um, system to a national system. So trying to move backwards is a challenge because our local processing isn't there. Mm-hmm. So our biggest stumbling block, our, our biggest limiting factor is... What to do after. Yeah, because we're, you know, we love raising animals, but we're terrible marketers. I mean, we try. Uh-huh. <laughs> so well, uh, we can help you market your, your, your beef over here at Heritage. Well, great. Thank you. Well, so we're running out of time, but I want to ask you one last question. Um, what... If you could write one farm issue into law, what would it be? One farm issue into law? That's a, that, that is a great question. I would, I would say that, oh boy, um, I, I would like to see specialty crops become far more, and now that this isn't as specific, I think, as you're asking for, um, but that specialty crops be recognized and given certain um, advantages. It's very. D- I, I would try to find a rule that would help the small family farm producing local and sustainable food. They, there's no way they can compete against big agriculture. Mm-hmm. How can we level that playing field so that small family farms once again can have a um, you know, an opportunity to compete and to recover. And so it's instead of losing over 50 family farms every week in the nation, we really start going the other way around. Is that the pace we're at? Yeah, we're at a very, very scary decline of the small family farm because we can't compete with the big agriculture. So what happens when we lose all the family farms, no biodiversity, and the pathogen could wipe out an entire, th- an entire food? 
That is absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, and we've lost a piece of, of our history and culture because once those family farms really are gone, those families are not likely and to turn around and go back into business. Sure. Now is the time to save them. Okay. Well, very well said, Kevin. We really appreciate the time you taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you. And, and Lorenzo, thank you for what you do. Oh, dude, it's our pleasure. So hopefully we'll speak many more times in the future. Please do, at any time. Okay, Kevin. Take care. Have a nice evening. You too. Bye-bye. I shall be